I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. I still think the most uh, uh, remarkable demonstration of the effect of masks was a little video uh, released in the New England Journal on uh, which they used laser lights to pick up uh, droplets. And they had a person uh, talk and uh, softly and intermediate and loud and showed these multiple uh, little droplets uh, lit up on the laser light. Then they put a mask on and they could find no droplets by laser light uh, no matter how loud they yelled. Uh, that proves that masks work. Fred and Bill, once again, uh, thank you for sharing your valuable time with us. Uh, in the intervening three weeks since we last spoke, um, new data about infection rates and also uh, a number of new studies, uh, the Cochrane Report, uh, just... Um, Looking at the data and the science around mask wearing, other things are coming up about the efficacy of vaccines and things like that. So it's it's great to have you. Hopefully, we can sort some things out, and uh, people, uh, as always, uh, can use your guidance. Anyway, uh, Bill, do you want to start with a quick update, and, um, broadly in terms of what's happening around the world, and Fred, just in terms of what you're seeing and uh, through your network. David, the last time we talked, we were just at the end of Lunar New Year. Um, and what we were saying was that we did we were not seeing any significant surge. You know, many people were afraid that the Lunar New Year with with being the numerically largest travel uh, period of the year worldwide was going to intermix various strains of SARS-CoV-2 around the world and create a new surge. Well, that didn't happen in most of the world. There were a couple of exceptions, and I'll talk about them. But um, we're now at least, we're roughly a month out from Lunar New Year. And I think we have, I know we have not seen a surge. And so I think we're safe to finally say that we're far enough past it that we dodged the bullet on that. Well, retrospectively, looking at the graphs of data regarding the other three main parameters of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, there was a small blip. I mean, it went up just, just a few percentage points. Um, you can see it when you look at a graph, uh, but it was very minimal, not, not impactful at all. And in fact, uh, hospitalizations and deaths have since uh, the beginning of February have started to come down. Um, and now if you look at the CDC's United States map, you'll see that almost the entire country is green. There are you know, certainly isolated counties, um, as well as eastern Pennsylvania and western New York, 
um, much of, of uh, Maine that are still in the yellow um, moderate impact region. But those are mostly not due to the numbers of cases and deaths, but due to the uh, underlying hospital capacity in those areas. Um, and hospital capacity is being used for, for other things also. So um, I, while I hesitate to say that we are completely done with COVID, I do feel very comfortable saying now that we are in a very good place. And I think it is reasonable for most people to look at COVID the same way that they look at flu during the typical flu season. You know, something you want to pay attention to, uh, be careful about, but you're not going to change your, your life and your lifestyle because of it. Uh, David, I agree with Bill. And uh, there, in, in uh, where I live in Northern Florida, we do have a pocket of moderate activity, and we're seeing some hospitalizations, but most of them are hospitalized with COVID. In other words, they're hospitalized for something else, and when we do the uh, PCR, RTT-PCR, it's positive, uh, but they don't have much in the way of symptoms. Uh, there's no question that the Omicron variants are milder and do not cause patients to be hospitalized as often. And uh, so it, which it is a milder disease. And fortunately, uh, a high percentage of, of the population at least has the original vaccine. Uh, the, this last booster, uh, only about 16% have gotten that. But uh, it turns out that that may be icing on the cake to some degree. And uh, I think we're, I, I agree, we're out of the woods overall. And David, in fact, I'd say at this point that what I am watching right now, even more than I'm, I'm still still keeping an eye on COVID, but what I'm watching more carefully is uh, influenza H5N1, avian influenza. Um, avian influenza has made a jump from birds to mammals in several areas of the world, and there have been at least two known cases of bird to human jump of H5N1. Uh, both of those happened in Cambodia. Um, beyond those two cases, there's no evidence of a jump to humans. So it's not something that's, that's uh, scaring me immensely at this point, but it is something just like COVID that I'm keeping an eye on uh, because if it did make that jump, H5N1 is not protected by the effectively by the uh, current vaccines and we would need to be careful about how we handle it. Fred, do you have any thoughts on... Um basically the threats of influenza? Well, yes, uh, we always uh, have to worry about influenza. And the avian influenza um, it can be quite virulent uh, and we don't have the same immunity to it. So it, it is a potential risk. So I, I think it's, it's probably won't have, even if we were to get full blown, would have the mortality rates of COVID-19. But it's something to definitely be concerned about. And uh, we'll just have to keep our eye out. One other point, I remember Bill and I were very worried about China creating new uh, variants of, for the COVID-19. And it turns out there have not been, to my knowledge, any new variants of interest or mutants of interest. And it does seem that, that the new, uh, new and more uh, aggressive as far as spread uh, variants have not uh, arisen. So that, that is really good news. David, the other thing I think is worthwhile um, talking about that's, that has caught a lot of people's attention over the last uh, week to 10 days was a study that came out 
uh, from the UK, from the Cochrane Library, which is a highly respected organization that what they do is they put together other studies. In this case, it was, I believe, over 70 studies that they looked at and came to a bottom line conclusion that you cannot draw any conclusion that mask programs made a major impact on stopping the spread of COVID. Now, having said that, you have to parse words on this one, and different people are parsing the words they want to. On the, uh, unfor- unfortunately, it's come down to a you know, a right left uh, viewpoint on this, but the right side is saying that ah, this means that masks were worthless and mask programs did more harm than good. On the left side, they say, wait a minute. This did not say that masks are not effective. This said that mask programs are not effective. So in reality, I think as I've read through this whole thing, I think it's both both are true. Mask programs were not demonstrated to be very effective, but masking themselves, if somebody wears a mask, wears it religiously, and it's a high quality mask and knows how to wear it correctly and is not mussing and fussing with the mask and infecting themselves in other ways, which is also a problem when you wear masks, then masks can be effective at the individual level. They are not, however, effective at the program level where most people, as we've all seen, people wearing masks over their mouth and not covering their nose, they're not effective at that level. But the other place where they they can make a difference is they keep people who have COVID from spreading it easily. So they're effective in that way. So it's it really is when you look at this whole Cochrane Library study, you can take what you want out of it. But the big thing is, uh, to me, is that it's the mask programs are not effective. But if you want to protect yourself, masking for yourself can be useful. So, Bill, I'm glad you brought this up. And Fred, I'm, I want to get your perspective because from the very beginning of our podcast two years ago, we talked about the politics around the pandemic and uh, obviously information, disinformation, the science, the data. And the Cochrane Library, uh, Bill, Fred, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I read enough about the work that they do is is viewed as a highly regarded, if not the gold standard of uh, medical research, curation, and, and publishing. Uh, it is relied upon uh, throughout. And the point, Bill, that I hear you making, and I just, you know, I want to underscore it, is that because politically in a wide variety of media sources and you know you're you're seeing this report cited as definitive proof that the mask mandate was ineffective and that the notion that masks could protect people and that includes masking children in school etc was otherwise ineffective Otherwise, it was misguided policy. Otherwise, it was misguided science. And what I'm hearing you, Bill, but also other experts that I've been able to speak with, is this notion that when it was decided to roll out a broad mask mandate, 
it it was a good I'll call it a good faith effort but what the data has shown is that masks are effective you see if they weren't effective you wouldn't see doctors wearing them all the time and that's sort of my takeaway but the point here is that on an individual basis when masks are worn properly when high quality masks are deployed when there is general adherence to um, wearing them in public and when exposed to people and things like that they are effective it's just that as this program was rolled out it was not as effective but for reasons that had nothing to do with the science of masks and mask uh, efficacy but really had to do with how masks were deployed is that a fair summary uh, David yeah I, I agree uh, to, to I work in the field of quality and safety and this requires that physicians and nurses change their behavior in order to uh, reduce risk to patients and improve the quality of care for patients well, we know, the science tells us, that if we mandate that somebody do something new, you get a 5% change in behavior. So mandates are well known to be resisted and are not effective. So the fact that you mandate it means absolutely nothing. That does not mean that masks are not effective. That means that people won't wear the masks if you mandate them. In fact, they may resist further, and that's exactly what happened, and the Cochrane Report proves that. Now, we uh, actually, what we've had to do when we uh, insert a new uh, protocol that we know will make a positive impact on patients, we have to monitor the behavior of those that are supposed to to, uh, change their behavior. We know now that if it takes 70% of those faithfully following the protocol to see an effect on patient safety. So if you only have 20% or 30% that are doing it, and that's probably pretty much what was going on in all the, most schools, probably only 30% of the kids really followed it faithfully, another 30 sort of did it, and then probably 30% didn't do it at all, or very, very little. So of course it doesn't work. That doesn't mean masks aren't effective. It means that people don't want to wear them. David, I think, unfortunately, you can, not to get too political here, but you can generalize this whole concept that when people say follow the science, yes, you can follow the strict science, but you've also got to take in the behavioral science aspects of things, and you've got to take in second and third order effects when you make policy decisions. That's a that's as far down the line on politics as I'll go on this. We've, we've protected both of you for two and a half years, and so I'm not about to uh, leave leave you exposed. One other thing I would say, I I still think the most uh, uh, remarkable demonstration of the effect of masks was a little video uh, released in the New England Journal on which they used laser lights to pick up uh, droplets. And they had a person uh, talk and uh, softly and intermediate and loud and show these multiple uh, little droplets uh, lit up on the laser light. Then they put a mask on and they could find no droplets by laser light, uh, no matter how loud they yelled. Uh, that proves that masks work. Uh, 
So uh, come on, why wouldn't they work? I mean, where it doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I can understand you not wanting to wear them. But that's a different story. And if you don't wear them, they're not effective. And to me, and um, Bill and Fred, you probably, you, I'm sure you have been through the report more carefully. To me, the question of the efficacy of mask wearing would have been a better question if they had analyzed it uh, amongst hospital professionals and nurses, doctors, who were wearing the right kinds of masks and wearing them in the right kind of way, whether that was effective. And, and the reason I, I, you know, I have no dog in the political fight here, but if masks were not effective, I would have a hard time understanding why for decades and decades, generations for that matter, uh, doctors and nurses and hospital professionals have masked up for surgery, masked up for ICU units, pediatric units, etc. So maybe you can just expand upon this a little bit. Yes, David, that's a, actually an incredibly important point. The reason that medical professionals wear masks on a general, you know, general basis in any of those high-risk environments is not to protect the mask wearer. It's to protect the environment, the people in the environment from someone who may be sick and doesn't realize it. That's why with something like COVID, which had, especially initially, not so much now, but the early COVID had a long asymptomatic yet infectious period. In that environment, mask mandate where you make people wear masks, even if they're not feeling sick, has some, has some merit. But in an environment where people are not that not very infectious until they uh, show symptoms, masks have less uh, less efficacy, actually, as long as people put on a mask when they do feel symptoms. But the reason for wearing a mask in a hospital is not to protect the wearer. It's to protect the other people in the environment from the wearer. And public policy being predicated on if we could get enough people in public to wear masks in the right kinds and the right ways that we could not obviously obviate the spread of the pandemic, but we could mitigate. And that's what I took away. Fred, you may have some additional thoughts. Yeah, yeah that, that's a very good point, David. The, uh, the masks are not foolproof, and there can be some leakage. Some particles can get out. Some aerosol can get out no matter for any mask. However, the number of particles and the dose of the virus that would spread would be markedly reduced. And we know that the, if uh, someone gets a lower dose of the virus, they will get milder, they're likely to get milder illness than if they were to get a heavy dose and someone who is not wearing a mask that coughs in somebody's face. And that does happen. Uh, and, and that is where we got into real problem prior to vaccination. And there were a number of cases I know in our own city, there was a bus driver and a woman sat behind him and coughed on him and a week later he was dead. So uh, there was uh, definitely a dose relation to this. And if you wear a mask, you're going to reduce the dose that you give to somebody else. David, I wish if we could have one big change, it wouldn't be that for us to have mask programs when we have re infectious respiratory diseases, but we have a cultural change that if you have a cold, 
you know, or flu or something like that, you either stay home, which is the ideal, or if you are out in public because maybe you feel like you're not that sick, in that setting, you wear a mask. In Asia, uh, I've spent a lot of time working in Asia. Um, in Asia, it is considered, um, you know, it, it's it's almost dirty if you have, you know, cold symptoms, you know, with runny nose, cough, and you're out in public without a mask. People look at you like, uh, I'm not going to try to draw any parallels, uh, but they look at you like you're dirty. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you brought this up, Bill. I have a number of friends who are of... Uh, Japanese descent living here in the States, who people who are still living in Japan, expats, etc. They never quite understood the political uproar around mask wearing. It is the height of, I'll call it, inconsideration and disrespect for your colleagues and friends not to don a mask when you have some form of illness. And so I don't want to say they looked at it with bemusement, but, you know, something that is absolutely accepted and people don't give it a second thought. So let me uh, move on because there's a very good question and in light of the data around COVID, people are looking at their vaccination cards and they're coming up on, you know, six or seven or eight months since their last booster. I'm not going to ask you what should people do. I'm going to ask both of you, what are you doing in terms of um, considering any kind of booster, and not just for yourself, but for your family members. And I know each of you are responsible for uh, people of a wide variety of ages. Uh, so that question has come up from um, from our network, our audience. I wanted to basically get your views on that. Well, the as you know, um, two weeks ago, I guess 10 days ago, the... Uh, CDC changed the vaccine advisory tables across the board to include COVID vaccine as part of the standard vac standard usual childhood vaccines and as recommended vaccines for adults. That has caused a lot of controversy. I think it was actually an unforced error on the CDC part because by including that in there as a standard recommendation, um, it's just it's it's inviting controversy since the, the data is still somewhat equivocal um, on the issue. Uh, just today, as a matter of fact, the CDC came back and they added to the recommendation, kind of backed off a little bit and said there is not enough data to, as a minimum, there is not enough data to support multiple annual boosters. That right now, what they think is best for adults is to have a, a adults with risk factors, including age, is to have a single booster, most likely in the fall, but not multiple boosters over the course of the year. And they were silent on whether adults in general, you know, this, the same target population as flu vaccines, they were silent as to whether or not there's a recommendation for that. So there's a little dichotomy coming out of two parts of uh, CDC on whether people should get COVID vaccines yeah, ad infinitum or not. Well, Bill, I'm not going to let you off the hook. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you telling your family members, including I know 
you know, you have grandchildren that you're responsible I am not, for. I am not getting, I'm not advising my grandkids to get vaccinated. I, I know at least you know, half of them have had COVID. The other half, I think, have had COVID because they got sick about the same time the ones that we know did. Um, for those, for uh, young adults, um, most young adults have had COVID or they at least they had their basic vaccine. Um, I think that that's at this point, I don't think there's any indication for additional vaccines. Um, my father is over 90, um, and I am getting him a vaccine whenever there's a, a booster because I don't think someone at the older, old age um, is effectively making uh, antibodies as well. So reminding the vaccine, their immune system that it's there, I believe is a good thing. And then, then taking into people who have immune deficiencies are in the same category as my father. And then that leaves kind of the, if you want to say the 60 to 60 to 75, 80 year old population of you know healthy older adults, um, should they get a vaccine or not? I think the, the annual vaccine, I will probably, I, I got a vaccine in the fall. I will probably get another vaccine next fall alongside my, my flu shot. But I've got another six months to to look at the data to make a final decision. Fred, how about you? I, I agree with yeah, I, I agree with Bill. Uh, that's exactly right. I, I've I've had uh, more. I've had uh, actually two a total of two two uh, standard boosters and one bivalent. So I've I've very boosted. I'm going to wait until the fall for myself. And I, I agree with Bill that. I think everybody, one way or another, has now been immunized, and so only those that are immune compromised in some way uh, warrant continued vaccination, in my view, okay. at this point. Um, a, a, an anecdotal uh, report from New York City. Uh, I have more colleagues and friends who, in the last three to four weeks, have come down with COVID, um, oftentimes for a second time. And um, obviously, it, it, it is disheartening to them. Uh, they talk about the fatigue, a bit of fever. But overall, because all of them have been fully vaccinated and uh, boosted, uh, they describe their symptoms as uh, inconvenient and unpleasant, but uh, obviously not you know, putting them at any significant risk. Uh, nor are they taking any, you know, medications for it other than, you know, the standard. So, Fred and Bill, for what it's worth, uh, a bit of anecdotal evidence about the efficacy of vaccines. Um, but nonetheless, the variants are around, uh, particularly here in New York. Um, and by the way, none of these none of these people spend any time with each other. So I, it's not like there was a uh, spreader event. One other key point is we have Paxlovid. And so if someone uh, in the risk group uh, gets, uh, is positive within the first five days, if they get Paxlovid, that dramatically reduces the risk of hospitalization. So I think we keep that in mind. That is our second uh, fail-safe and very important. Um, speaking of anecdotal reports, um, in my own practice, but then in, in uh, many other physician practices, we've been seeing a lot of um, gastrointestinal disease, which 
many people are assuming, and there's some tests to support it, is norovirus, um, primarily in the Northeast, but there's been some on the West Coast also. Sudden onset um, typically lasts 12 to 24 hours and is gone. CDC heard enough of these anecdotal reports that they came out last week with a statement that, no, when you look at the actual data they're seeing, and they have a surveillance network for this, that this is typical for this time of year, prior to COVID, um, that we dropped almost nothing. So it's what we're seeing is probably normal, but uh, it just feels like more because we haven't seen it for the last few years. Well, on that uh, cheery note of what, and by the way, also have colleagues who incurred this and went through their house with young kids yep. and oh, everything exactly, else. exactly, exactly. A very unpleasant 24 hours, Bill, as you probably know. Yeah. So I want to thank both of you for um, a very calm conversation and helping us parse through uh, the noise uh, around uh, some of the reports and the uh, what I'll refer to as what the what the data and the science is showing in a highly politicized and polarized world. So, Fred, Bill, thank you again. Look forward to catching up in three weeks. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, again, you have our gratitude. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida's College of Medicine. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents. Our host, David Lawrence, is the founder of RAIN, a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. Learn more about RAIN's market-leading risk intelligence products at RAINnetwork.com. That's RAINnetwork, R-A-N-E, network.com. Thank you for listening.